Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, welcome, and uh, it's been an eventful week. Um, today, Donald Trump tweeted that the Comey testimony yesterday had uh, been total and complete vindication for him. Now, this brings to mind a device of the old McLaughlin group that I'm going to employ here, which is uh, on a scale of zero to ten, with zero being total and complete vindication and ten being metaphysical damage to his presidency. Where does the Comey testimony f- fall? I haven't thought about that McLaughlin device. That wasn't stupid, right? Because it makes you sort of focus and come up with a, an answer instead of the usual talking around it like I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I would say a seven. I think it was damaging because I think at the end of the day, it's Comey told a truthful account, maybe one that was slightly flattering to him, but a truthful Comey account. flattering of what, to himself. Yeah, it's... but a truthful account of what happened, basically. And for me, look, this is, I mean, people are, too many people are judge, you know, are, are into the sort of theater of it, I would say. I don't blame them. It was a theatrical moment. But, you know, did the, Comey do well on this, or is the pushback by Corey Lewandowski good on that? But that's all fine. It might affect Trump's approval rating by a point or two. But at the end of the day, the main thing that happened, and that Comey well, the main thing that happened is Trump fired Comey. The Trumpy, Comey, as a result, was able to maneuver in a way uh, things so that uh, uh, the deputy attorney general appointed a special counsel, uh, Comey's predecessor at the FBI, Robert Mueller, to look into the – to investigate the Russia affair, but also everything that's happened presumably subsequently if that becomes legally questionable. And now we have a real investigation. And I've been on the fringes of those when I was in the White House. Thank God never at the center of one. And they're going to find out what, who did what when, who said what when, pretty much. And right now it looks to me like Donald Trump I – mean, the bad news for Trump, in my opinion, it goes back to that first thing he did on January 27th, the one-on-one dinner with Kobe. Extremely rare, incidentally. I, I know of nothing like that. A president, one week into his term, you know, he's got a million people he can have over, celebrate, his family, his friends, his donors, his cabinet members. And he calls up the FBI secretary, uh, director, whom he barely knows, and has him over, and not as part of a kind of group, let me get to know the people on the law enforcement side of the administration or something like that, or the intelligence community. No, just a one-on-one conversation. That happens the day after the, dep- the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, goes to the White House and briefs the White House counsel on Flynn, as she claims, having a problem of possibly being compromised. Yates briefs McGahn, the White House counsel. McGahn presumably tells the president about it. President's first reaction, call up and have Comey come over for a one-on-one conversation in which the president apparently sort of tries to figure out how far Comey's going to push this investigation, how susceptible he might be to guidance or pressure or control. Uh, and that doesn't prove that Trump did anything uh, impeachable or criminal. It doesn't even prove in a way that he did anything that wrong. You could say he's president. He's entitled to find out this kind of stuff. But it's extremely imprudent to ha- when you're part of the target, partly involved in the investigation, if not a target, uh, to have that conversation. And I would say that that combined with the one-on-one meeting on February 14th suggests to me that Donald Trump wanted to slow down, keep an eye on, constrain the Russia investigation. He was worried about that investigation. Was he worried because he's been been unfairly accused and, as he said, it's a cloud over my presidency and it makes it harder to make deals? Or was he worried because he was – there are things that he would, knew about or was involved in or that are problematic and that he was worried would come out? That's the question at this point, I think. Uh, but either way, it's very hard to defend a president doing what Trump did on January 27th or February 14th. As as Peggy Noonan has pointed out, one thing that we learned is how little 
Donald Trump understands the norms of the office. I mean, she, yeah, and Paul Ryan made a similar point, but I actually don't quite buy that in the sense – I think it's true. He doesn't understand or doesn't uh, believe in the mm. traditional norms of the office. But also this is not a case where Trump is like a naive in the ways of Washington. Trump's been involved in a lot of legal cases over the years. He has a lot of experience a dealing with lawyers. Yes. And I would say his behavior towards uh, Comey is consistent with that of a CEO who's worried about an investigation that's affecting parts of his company, might think he has some personal vulnerability or not, knows that he shouldn't, you know, he can't bribe people or fight or order people to do certain things. In this case, a little different because he's president or CEO is probably dealing with the Manhattan you know, DA's office or something, but tries to figure out kind of what do they know and is there some way I could kind of steer them away. So he was pretty careful in what he said. I hope you'll do this, not I order you to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, Flynn's a good guy and all that. But it's consistent with a guy who's used to trying to maneuver the legal system to make sure he's clear of it and to make sure that it doesn't impinge upon him or damage him too much. And again, that's one thing to do that if you're a CEO, you're, you buy dinner for a DA, maybe it's inappropriate, maybe it isn't, maybe you, you talk around the issue and you don't obviously bribe someone or whatever. That's another thing though, if you're president with the FBI. So it does show a lack of understanding. It shows what we've all talked about. We've talked about this for months on this podcast and everyone's talked about it. He, some of us thought he might change when he became president, not change his character, but internalize the fact that he's now president and that being president of the United States is different from being CEO of the Trump Organization. And being CEO of the Trump Organization is a fine thing to be, but you just can't import all the habits and mores of that into the presidency. And so I think maybe you could argue that's naivete, but I also think he wants to import – I mean he wants not to change. You know, He thinks part of his pitch was that I'm going to be me, not not presidential. But there's a reason we want presidents to be bent over backwards to not mess around with investigations and so forth. I, I think part of this as well, or something that is is a parallel, is that Trump doesn't take seriously enough the skills and methods of Washington. If you had been paying any attention to the career of James Comey, you would know that he was a very practiced political knife fighter. And you would be very careful and really handle him, um, if not delicately, at least understand where he could hurt you and try to minimize that. Trump had no respect whatsoever for the damage that Comey could do him. I very much agree with that. I guess he thought, look, I defeated all these Washington insiders in the campaign, both the primaries and the general election. They told me I had to be more careful. I wasn't. It helped me, he thinks. It did. And that he, but even then, it's one thing to be a candidate and another thing to be president. It's one thing to rhetorically attack the media or judges or, or, or uh, uh, the intelligence community. It's another thing as president to uh, do things that, yes, as you say, make enemies and then to fire Comey. I said that, that I was, I said the day he fired him. I just thought it from his own point of view. Let's stipulate that maybe James Comey was not an excellent FBI director. I have no idea if he was or wasn't. Uh, I think most people in the FBI thought well of him, but whatever. Um, maybe he could have been, Maybe Mr. Ray will be a better director of the FBI for the next four or ten years, I suppose. That's the term they have, right? Maybe that's objectively true. I don't know if it is, but maybe it's objectively true. Even so, looked at from – he's probably not going to be that much better a director. And looked at from Trump's personal point of view, it was much better to keep Comey in close – and have him operating through channels with some ability perhaps to you know, talk to people and, and, and keep an eye on it and, and raise issues where appropriate. 
than have this special counsel. And that was pretty obvious that, that we were going down that. Once he fired Comey, I thought it was kind of obvious that we were going down that road. And he should have thought of that. Remember, Sessions had already recused himself, right, from the Russian investigation. So, uh, yes, you say he just doesn't – he's very confident. And uh, then he gets annoyed when things don't go quite as he as he hopes. Maybe he should – not act first so he doesn't get annoyed afterwards and step back and say, you know what? There's some things I can't affect much. This is a huge organization that's been around forever. It's got a lot of contacts with journalists and stuff like that. And if I get on their wrong side, they're probably going to come back after me. Well, let's move to the bigger political picture. You editorialize in the Weekly Standard this week uh, a a piece called The Republican Future um, about how Trump is affecting the long-term Uh, prospects for the GOP. Uh, And you start this article by talking about the current polling for Donald Trump's uh, approval. Um, Where is the overall polling? So there's a Quinnipiac poll that came out, and that's the one that struck me. If you look at other polls, the Quinnipiac's a little harsher on Trump than others. I think the average is about 38 approval, 55 disapprove. Um, Quinnipiac's 34, I think, 57, something like that. But those are, you know, all in the ballpark. So let's just say he has mid-30s approval, maybe a little high-30s approval, uh, and mid-50s disapproval. It's Clinton went down to that five months in and recovered, so it's not disastrous. It's not good. And with a good economy for the last five months, the first five months of his presidency, a uh, stock market making, uh, setting record highs, uh, not no major foreign policy crises, I wouldn't say. Uh, you'd think he might be stronger than 35 or 38 percent. So I think that would, if I were a Trump supporter, uh, I'd be worried. If I were a Republican, I'd be a little worried about that going into the midterm election. I will add, I don't say this in the editorial, this, one of the single best predictors for how a party does in a midterm election, if that party controls the presidency, as is the case with the Republicans in 2018, is the president's approval rating. It's a pretty historically good predictor of what voters are going to want to do in the midterm election. So I think they have a fair amount to be worried about in 2018. But what struck me in the poll and what the focus of the editorial is the age brackets. Trump is actually among Americans 45 and over. It's pretty steady. They break it to 65 and up, I think 50 to 65. Maybe it's 45 to 65, 50 to 65 I think it is. And there he's about similar. A little weaker among 34 to to 50. Um, But then the bottom falls out among younger Americans. Among Americans 18 to 34 – I think Trump has a 19% job approval and 67% disapproval. And as I say in the editorial, I don't think we should value the opinions of youth more than uh, those of their elders, probably less. But as a practical matter, if you want to have a successful political party, a successful movement, you kind of want young – you can't just be getting slaughtered among young people. They're around for a long time. Now, there is, however, some trend – as you get older, you become a taxpayer, you have children, right. you tend to become – people overall will become somewhat more conservative than they were when they were in college. They will, but there's – political scientists have looked at this and generally the, the sickiness of partisan affiliation uh, to some degree of ideological views is more striking than the change as a result of age. There's some of both obviously. And uh, you don't want to begin – and my point was this is a generation that's seeing – uh, many of them, you know, Obama, they had a lot of them voted for Obama. They probably had mixed views of him. He didn't deliver on what he, they had promised. There was a Republican opportunity in 2016. Younger Republicans had won in 2014. They had some attractive candidates. And they do, if you look at the Republican Party in Congress and in the governor's mansions, I would say, hey, that's 
pretty should be pretty attractive to young Americans. You know, Marco Rubio and and uh, Tom Cotton and Ben Sass and Cory Gardner and Elise Stefanik and Mike Gallagher and I could go on and on. You know, Nikki Haley. It's sort of okay. That's good. But ben you know? Sass is going to make them all work. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so they don't like that. That's a good point. That's a good point. But. But uh, I don't know. I just think maybe I'm importing my biases here. I think if young Americans look up and think, oh, republicanism, conservatism, Donald Trump, that is going to be a problem for the Republican Party to the degree that that becomes embedded. Now, to the degree young Americans look up and see, well, Trump, uh, he's the president. He's Republican. He he won the nomination. He won the election. Uh, He says he's kind of a conservative. But, you know, there are a lot of other Republicans and conservatives, and they're not really in lockstep behind Trump. I think that would be a much healthier situation for the future of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And there is such a thing as negative brand equity. You know, there was a a problem that GM had for a while that uh, they've tried to address where they would show people a car and people would kind of like it. But if they could see that it had a Chevy logo on it, then their their approval of the car would go down. Yeah, that's interesting. One wonders if Trump is going to be the Chevy brand label for the Republicans. Well, that is what they're worried about in 2018. And again, the political science research... uh, it does suggest that some of that is true, that a party takes on the pluses and minuses of its leader. People think the leader is the president of that party. And that's, again, why a president with a low approval rating will tend to do have his party do poorly in an off-year election. Obviously, a lot of that is driven by reality, I mean, by the economy and foreign policy, not just by, you know, images and, and, and a sense of uh, liking or disliking. But again, what if I were a Republican running for Congress in 2018, what would worry me the most is Trump is, let's just say, at 38. But the economy is pretty good. I mean, is it going to get better over the next year? Maybe. Is the world going to get safer? Maybe. But it could easily be more the opposite, right? And so if Trump's only at 38 in a pretty decent environment out there, what does it look like if we have some kind of you know economic shock? So I, I think Trump could be a pretty big burden for Republicans in 2018. And 2018 could be a big burden for Trump. He keeps complaining about how ill-treated he's been. He has no idea what ill-treatment is until the Democrats control the House of Representatives and can uh, bring impeachment charges if they like and can uh, investigate to their heart's content. I totally agree. That is something that if you haven't been around Washington, you don't quite appreciate. I I came here in 85, worked for Bill Bennett. We were, thank God, not involved in any major scandals. (laughs) But we had the normal fights with with liberals and and the normal just management issues. And it may – when we lost the Senate, Republicans lost the Senate in November 86. And Bennett was luckily not high in anyone's radar screen of people to, you know, bother and investigate much. And Iran-Contra was going on in 87. So, you know, we kind of slid beneath the radar. But I remember just just dealing with that – it just changes everything. There's a kind of deference to you if it's your party, uh, you know, or benefit of the doubt, let's say, which you don't get from the other party. And of course, Trump's not, it's not going to be like Bill Bennett, you know, where they don't really care much. I mean, Trump will be the focus of everything. So I very much agree with that one point you just mentioned in passing. It's very important to stress, I think, useful to stress. It's not just impeachment. Everyone's obsessed with it. They're going to begin impeachment proceedings on January, you know, 5th of 2019. They might well. But the, the oversight, the hearings, the what they can do routinely. Uh, is not under, to be minimized. People under oath. People uh, under oath. What were your conversations with the president here? Uh, well, I'm not going to discuss conversations with the president. Well, really? I mean, let's have let's argue about that for a while and let's produce documents and let's have other people testify and people who've quit from that department uh, and it was they were unhappy testify. And suddenly you've got hearings with every agency having disgruntled career appointees who are liberals who quit or maybe just retired, you know, uh, suddenly showing up and saying, I was pressured to do X. And well, where did that pressure came from? 
come from? Well, it came from my boss, but maybe it came indirectly from Trump. Well, let's call your boss and find out. You could just have a sea of investigations and hearings and oversight that could make life much more miserable than it is now. Speaking of miserable, we've got a little bit of time left here, and uh, it's a miserable day for Theresa May, who had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad election yesterday. Um, what do you make of the of the conservatives? I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, you know, uh, I don't know if we know. I guess she's going to try to form a government, and most likely they did well enough for her to hang on. It's but she's very wounded, obviously. Uh, she called the snap election, something they can do in Britain, can't do here. And um, I was actually in Richard Starr's office that day. And I can't remember who else was there from the Standard. And, and someone else said, well, she looks like she's, I mean, correctly, said, you know, she's way ahead in the polls. It looks they're saying she could pick up, uh, you know, end up with a majority of 50, 75, or 100. And I said, not having followed it at all, just said, you know, I just have this instinct when these politicians, when these prime ministers call snap elections, they do it, of course, because they're strong at that moment. But then things can change very fast. And I said, I vaguely even remember from sort of my, you know, college days or grad school, a couple of snap elections that went awry, that went the opposite way. And I think that is true, incidentally, in the 70s. There were a couple where they called them thinking they would bolster their majorities and then lost the majority or came close to losing it. And uh, that's what happened in this case. So that means more instability. I mean, A, what's bad for that about it for Americans is <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn, the head of labor, is really – it's unfair to Bernie Sanders to say he's there, Bernie Sanders. He's much to the <laughs> left, much to the left, much more of a friend of dictators, honestly, left-wing dictators, than Sanders. So the fact that he was able he's to get – Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that he was able in England and Britain to get so many votes and seats should worry Americans. And it creates a much more unstable government in what is one of our closest allies, um, and so at a, at a, at a, and weakens Theresa May, who looked to be, from my point of view, if you believe in sort of center-right domestic policies and a strong commitment to the Atlantic Alliance, someone who might be a good, a very good prime minister. So I think it was not a good day for us. Well, that's it for the Crystal Clear podcast. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription. Or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Bill, thanks so much. Thanks, Eric. And thank you for listening. I'm Eric Felton.